What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey, what do you know? We made it to Friday. Welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Have you got a question about the Catholic faith? Maybe you're asking your friends, your co-workers, and they're going, well, I don't know what the Church teaches about that. Well, you can find out today in this hour. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us in Zanzibar, you need to uh, dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. You can always text us. Uh, No, 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 no. You can always send us an email. The address for that is ctc at EWTN.com, ctc at EWTN.com. Michael McCall is our producer today. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Rich Jesse handles social media for us. And if you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming on both platforms right now. Just put that question of yours in the comments box, and uh, Rich will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio. Hopefully we can answer your question on today's program, no matter how you get it to us. And then you won't have to uh, fret about it over the weekend. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing very well. How are you? Well, I you know how a, a smoke detector sounds when the battery starts to go out, and beep, you, beep, you, beep, you beep. don't remember you you don't know where it is in the house. Yes, but like, in some sort of random schedule, it just goes beep in a really high yes shriek. Yes. Well, I have a dog that does that noise, <laughs> right? And uh, and she's terrified of the rain, and so whenever it rains, and it's always at night. Every, you know, in random intervals, 30 seconds, 45 seconds, she'll sound off and go beep, 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 you know, yip, 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 all night long. And I'm sitting there, I've got a noisemaker on, I'm putting pillows over both ears, (laughs) earplugs in my ears, and it's still, you know, that high pitch just penetrates through all that stuffing. So I'm I'm a little bit sleep deprived, and it's all Smudge's fault. Smudge is the Havanese that yips all night long. I'm so sorry. That's okay. The struggle. You know what she's doing right now? What's that? She's sleeping it off. Probably so. (laughs) I want to go yip in her face. (laughs) Good luck with that. Uh, Overnight last night, we received a phone call uh, which went to EWTN's listener comment line, and it was a show, uh, a a question for this show. My name is Xander. I'm from San Antonio, Texas. I am kind of going through some spiritual warfare, going through RCIA, and I have a, a New Testament class that I'm taking in, in school that's not really theology-based, you know, more more history kind of uh, perspective. And I'm just wondering about James, who I always kind of blew that off as, oh, well, you know, James is not really Jesus's brother. It's just his brother in Christ. But, you know, it seems more and more to me like it's, you know, James is an actual brother, and I, I, uh, I want to make sure that I'm sound in, in my faith and everything, because obviously Virgin Mary stays virgin, and so I'm, I'm just trying to kind of figure that out. Thanks. Okay. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So if you look at Matthew chapter 13, uh, the crowds say of Jesus, where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Then if you flip over to Matthew chapter 27, 
when uh, you see the account of Jesus um, on the cross, we read that many women were watching from a distance, uh, and among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, uh-huh. and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And then if you look at John chapter 19, we find these people at the foot of the cross, um, Jesus's mother, his mother's sister, namely Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Mm. So you put those three passages together, and what you learn is that James is the son of Mary, the wife of Clopas, the the sister or sister-in-law yeah. of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Okay. And so James was Jesus's one of his brethren, but not his biological sibling. Okay. We hope that's helpful for you. Thanks for your uh, phone call uh, on the overnight hours. Those always uh, forward over to our listener comment line, and then uh, hopefully we can get those questions answered like we just did uh, with him. Here's a question now from Art. Hi, guys. In the story of Cain and Abel, why did God reject Cain's offering of the produce of his garden? Surely he was doing his best to please God. Isn't that what we're all told to do? Thank you. I appreciate the question. The text does not say... The text of Genesis does not say why God preferred Abel's offering to Cain's. Um, And so we are left to speculation. Mm -hmm. Now, it is quite possible that Cain gave his offering with a completely different disposition. And his surly character and vengeful attitude suggests that perhaps he did not come with the proper contrition and thanksgiving. Ah. Right? Um, Or... You know, perhaps he, you know, we just don't know, but we can speculate. But it wasn't arbitrary. We know that. Okay. Very good. And uh, here's one quick question from Linda in South Carolina. I have heard a few Catholics and former Catholics say when they were children and asked their parent if they could read the Bible, the parents said no. How do I respond to this? Does this not happen to Protestant kids? Seems to me that non-Catholic parents would say the same thing to their children if they thought the kids were too young to understand what they were reading. Or is it really only in Catholic households that this occurs? Yeah, thanks. So I I certainly was not familiar growing up as a Protestant with parents that told their children not to read the Bible. And uh, I have heard stories, I think today that'd be very uncommon in Catholic households. I have heard stories about yesteryear, you know, in the first half of the 20th century, so my my grandparents' generation, um, of uh, of children that grew up in Catholic households where they would be discouraged from reading the Bible because that was thought of as a kind of Protestant thing to do. Uh, Because the concern was if, you know, a person, an untutored person, uninformed, unfamiliar with the teaching of the Church— picks up the Bible and tries to figure it out for themselves, well, there's just no telling where they're going to end up, yeah. and it's better to read it with the mind of the Church. Now, that kind of answer usually sends shivers down the spine of Protestants. I have come to be very sympathetic to that point of view, hmm. very sympathetic. Now, you know, I myself have never discouraged my children from reading the Bible, uh, and in fact, um, when one of my sons was in junior high, high school, we used to, my mother, his mother used to go to confession at a Catholic church on a Wednesday night, and he would wander next door to the Methodist youth group and impress them all with his Bible knowledge. Wow. Right? But, uh, but I'll come back to why that doesn't bother me so much after the break. Sit tight, Linda. We'll continue with your question, and we'll get to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986 for the Friday edition of Call to Communion. 
It's called a communion here on EWTN, our phone number, and we do have one line open right now, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Before we carry on here, let's uh, finish up this question from Linda in South Carolina regarding uh, kids reading the Bible. Yeah, so the question was about whether Catholic parents ever discouraged their children from reading the Bible, and I said, I think such things have happened. It's not very common today. I never discouraged my kids from reading the Bible. In fact, they acquired some pretty significant Bible knowledge. Hmm. Um, They also lived at home with me, and I was able to talk to them about the dogmatic structure of the Catholic faith and the salvation history and to set those passages of Scripture in a context and give them an understanding of the Bible in line with the mind of the Church and so forth. Mm-hmm. And that's really the way you have to do it. You have to approach the Bible with a, with the mind of the Church. And if you don't, if you don't, if you just pick up the Bible untutored and read it as the man on the street would and take it in a sort of straightforward, plainly literal sense, you're likely to run into trouble. And in particular, when it comes to this, what the Synod on the Bible called the dark passages of the Old Testament. And as we all know, you read the Old Testament, there's some pretty problematic stuff in there that has to be handled with a certain amount of sophistication. And Pope Benedict actually writes, and I'm I'm reading the Pope right now, he says it would be a mistake to neglect those passages of Scripture that strike us as problematic, but we should be aware that the correct interpretation of these passages requires a degree of expertise, which we know all eight-year-olds have. Oh, yeah. Okay acquired through a training that interprets the texts in their historical literary context Mm -hmm. and within the Christian perspective, which has as its ultimate hermeneutical key the gospel and the new commandment of Jesus Christ brought about in the Paschal mystery. So in other words, you know, you have to approach the Old Testament with caution, or you might, you might be, you might get led down the wrong path. And that's clearly happened historically. People have, have picked up the Bible, and if they don't read with the mind of the church, with that Christian hermeneutical key, they can come to some pretty horrific conclusions about, mm. you know, say things like uh, slavery or genocide or what have you. And and we've seen instances of that in history where people have turned to the Bible to justify horrific behavior. In my upbringing, which was Protestant and not Catholic, I think the 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 the, the danger that sort of an untutored approach to the Bible imposed upon me was a kind of uh, date-setting apocalypticism that that uh, that bred paranoia and a kind of uh, um, sort of anti-culture hysteria, right? I mean, all of my uh, all my friends when I was in grammar school sort of, you know, ran around thinking the end of the world was going to come any second and, and uh, you know, the Soviets were going to bomb us and it was going to be Armageddon. And, and that, that doesn't really conduce to a proper social concern. So there are dangers to taking up the Bible without the mind of the church. And if a parent, like, doesn't have the adequate formation— to teach their kids how to read the Bible properly, then I don't think it's entirely irrational for them to say, wait till we get there in CCD class and let's read it with the mind of the church. Linda in South Carolina, thanks so much for your email. Uh, It's called a communion here on EWTN where you can visit our website and find out all about Mother Angelica, our foundress. You can celebrate her remarkable life. It's filled with photos and milestones, heartfelt stories, and of course, her wit and words that have inspired the hearts of all ages throughout the years. Visit EWTN.com slash Mother Angelica to find out all about it and uh, dive right in. You know, she, her, her programming that we still carry on EWTN radio and television, it is timeless. Same, seems like she recorded yesterday. That's what I love. EWTN.com slash Mother Angelica. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833 288 
EWTN, beginning with John in Cable, Wisconsin, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, John, a blessed Lent to you. What's on your mind today, sir? John in Cable, Wisconsin, are you there? Yeah, uh, Dr. Anders, in RCIA class this week, they, they said that we should respect the devil, and I've been struggling with that statement all week, and I'm wondering what the Catholic position is. Yeah, thanks. We, I, I really, uh, really appreciate that question. So let me make a couple comments. First of all, you are not going to find in the Catechism of the Catholic Church the instruction, thou shalt respect the devil. You're not, okay? And that, and I think that's a, that's a maybe an infelicitous choice of uh, phrase that yeah. a particular RCA director decided to employ. I think what the teacher, him or her, meant to suggest is that the devil poses a real threat to human well-being, and we do well to keep that thread in mind. You know, not to dismiss the devil as a kind of fiction or fantasy, but to take seriously the fact that the devil is out there prowling around like a roaring lion, seeing, uh, seeking whom he might destroy. So I, th- I would say, to borrow their language, I would respect the devil in the same way that I respect colon cancer. Oh. Right? You know, like that. That's a you know, I'm not going to tip my hat to colon cancer, but but. <laughs> I recognize, yeah, it's something I need to, you need to get your tests every so often when you get to be a certain age and eat a high-fiber diet and all the rest of it, right? That's the kind of respect I'm talking about. In the okay. same way, um, you know, how do I protect myself against the devil? How do I inoculate myself against the devil? Not through a high-fiber diet, but through a diet of prayer and penance and asceticism and the sacraments and staying close to Jesus. That's the best way to protect myself against that threat. But again, the, the language there of respect, maybe not the best phraseology, and that brings me to my second point, which is that RCIA directors are human beings. Yes. Um, and that they can vary a great deal one from another in their skill in presenting the faith. And remember that the, 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 the touchstone for your instruction is the Catechism of the Catholic Church, not the instructor. The instructor has a job description, which is to present the teaching of the Catechism to you. Um, people can do that more or less effectively, but ultimately it's the catechism, not the human instructor, that's the, that's, the, uh, that's the standard. John, thanks so much for your call today. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Uh, phones tend to uh, get busy very quickly and stay busy throughout the uh, Fridays that we have uh, been doing this show almost 10 years now. So uh, my advice to you, call early, and if you get a busy signal, call us right back, 833-288-EWTN. All right, let's go now to uh, Jeff, a first-time caller in Florida, listening also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Jeff. What's on your mind today, sir? Good afternoon. Hi. So... Last time I went to confession, uh, I got scolded by the priest a little bit. Not in, not in a bad way, but um, I, I uh, quoted some scripture where um, uh, you know, I'm a new creation in Christ. The old has gone. The new is here. I no longer live according to the old man. I'm now the new man. My identity is now crucified with Christ. And... Um, The Apostle Paul said that when he sins, since he really, really, really didn't want to do what he did, it's not him that did it, it's the sin that lives within him. So 
I had a hard time confessing my sins when I told the priest that it really wasn't me. It was the flesh that, that did it. It wasn't my my true spirit soul identity, which is one with Christ. So I know the scripture does say, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed, but I'm really confused about how the, the, the need to go to confession when I too hate when the flesh sins, but that's not my identity. So I'm, to- I'm totally with you. I absolutely understand what you're talking about. So in the seventh chapter of the book of Romans... St. Paul distinguishes, he says, there's the, there's, the law of my, there's the law of God, there's the law of my mind, you know, and then there's the, there's the law of my members, and the law of sin and death. He distinguishes these different sort of moral realities, and he depicts the condition of the human person as one of inner conflict, where I have impulses that he identifies with the principle of sin and death, that run contrary to what he calls the law of my mind, which is my rational assessment of my moral good. And so, you know, you take somebody, for example, uh, uh, you know, let's say someone who says, uh, you know, I understand rationally that the worst possible thing I could do for my happiness and the happiness of my family would be to to commit adultery. Uh, Like I recognize that that is not going to make me happy. Uh, that is a destructive thing to do. It's harmful to me. It's harmful to my children, harmful to my wife. And I, I really don't have the desire to commit adultery in the sense I don't have, I can't form, let me reframe. I don't have, I can't form the rational judgment that this is a wise thing to do. Yeah. Right. And yet that very same person might be confronted with the temptation to adultery. You know, some beautiful person comes and, you know, throws himself or herself at, at this individual. And, uh, and their passion overwhelms them, and they act in a way that's contrary to what the good of reason says is in my best interest. Now, that's just what—that's just the nature of sin. But sin is always the temptation to do the irrational thing. And St. Thomas Aquinas tells us that virtue is nothing other than life according to right reason, and sin is nothing other than the violation of that right reason. Now, that's not, that's not incoherent, the idea that I can have a rational conception of the moral good— and that I could simultaneously dismiss what my conscience and reason tell me and act contrary to that because I have some immoderate passion. Now, here's, here's where moral responsibility comes in and, what, and where it does become in confessional matter. Um, if I don't have a clear, rational conception of the moral good or my, or, my, or my mind is cloudy on this issue and I've been badly formed, so I really don't know what the moral good is, and yet I follow the passions of my flesh. Well, then I'm, then I'm, the church says I'm not responsible or I'm not fully responsible. Okay. It's what you call invincible ignorance. Oh. Um, so, you know, let's say you're raised in a culture um, that's, uh, you know, just utterly bereft of, of fidelity. And, and, you know, I mean, there are such cultures in history and the kids usually suffer enormously and they kind of get, I mean, I'm thinking of one, I don't want to name it out loud because I don't want to cast anybody under the bush, but I'm thinking of a, of an indigenous culture where children are kind of raised in these sort of wild bands of, uh, you know, criminal activity and they grow up without parents and the whole society is kind of falling apart. And yet, if you're born into that, like you really don't know another way. Yeah. Right? It's the, yeah. Only, the only life you know. Um, so it, it's really destructive, but you're, you're not going to be fully morally responsible for that because you just, you just you can't see your way through to a better option. So the church says there is such a thing as, as invincible ignorance. But when you know the good and you're consciously, explicitly aware of it, and then you follow the passions of the flesh, that's when moral responsibility comes in. And that is a human act. So we can't say, you know, the devil made me do it. The devil doesn't make you do it. The Catholic Church has a very strong doctrine of human freedom, 
And that's where moral responsibility comes in, right? And so that's what, you know, I don't confess concupiscence. That is to say, the the immoderate attachment, the immoderate desire of my flesh in itself is not a sin. Mm-hmm. You know, so if I if a man sort of has the the passionate urge to commit adultery, he doesn't go to confession and say, you know, I I'm really strongly drawn to the idea of adultery. That's actually that's a temptation. That's not a sin, right? It becomes a sin when he commits adultery. Sure. Okay. That's what you confess. Okay. Jeff, is that helpful for you, sir? Yes, it's getting me on the right path. I I appreciate that. Glad to hear it. Thanks for your call. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Peter is a first-time listener in Atlanta, listening on our great affiliate there, The Quest. Hello, Peter. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi, good afternoon. Um, I'm calling to find out uh, how to explain a little bit better the whole idea of the rapture to a a non-Catholic. Sure. Because, you know, they can look at the Bible and say, well, it says it right here, we'll be caught up in the sky, and those who are asleep in Christ, which now that leads me to another question, but I'm just going to stay with the rapture. Okay. But, you know, they say it's, it's right here, in the, it's right here, written in black and white. Mm. You know, yeah, yeah. how can you say this? Okay. Yeah, I can totally help you. So 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says that, when the Lord comes back, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together uh, in the clouds with Christ. All Catholics believe that. Yes. When Jesus comes back, we're going to go air surfing. <laughs> that's the biblical teaching. But that's not what Protestants mean by the rapture. That's not, that's not all that they mean. We all agree we're going to get caught up in the air. That's not at question. The Protestant doctrine of the rapture holds that before the end of time, that there is a kind of secret coming of Jesus, that there are three comings of Jesus. There's the incarnation, the coming at the end of time, and then here's this secret coming in the middle that's nowhere in the Bible, and that that's when people are caught up into the air, that Jesus comes back, that what they call the true believers are caught up in the air, they're taken away to heaven by Jesus, then Jesus is going to pour out seven years of tribulation upon the earth, after which time he's going to come back with those true believers, you know, land a third time, as it were, and then and then begin the millennium eschaton. Um, so that's the the more robust doctrine that Protestants have in mind when they talk about a rapture. Flying around in the air is not an issue. Catholics, we, we're all about flying around in the air. No problems flying around in the air. It's what are you doing when you're flying? Are you flying to heaven, staying seven years and coming back? That's the Protestant rapture doctrine. Or... Are you flying up to meet the triumphant king who's getting ready to judge the living and the dead? That's the Catholic doctrine. Now, so you've got to get them to unpack what they think happens with the flying in the air business. Mm-hmm. Okay, And if they give you all this stuff about rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem and, and, and tribulations and bowls of wrath and, and, and uh, you know, the, the true believers being zapped away um, and unbelievers, you know, having this punishment and then true believers, that's the business that's unbiblical that they piece together by taking texts out of context uh, to make the Bible say something that it doesn't actually say. So you you got to get them to unpack the full picture of what they mean by the rapture. And, 
and they're pointing to this First Thessalonians 4 business as if it proves all that, and it doesn't prove all that. It just proves that we're going to go air surfing. There you go, Peter. <laughs> air surfing. That's a, quite a good concept, I think. Thanks so much for your call today from Atlanta. In a moment, we're going to be talking with Chris, a first-time caller from Rapid City, also Donald in Baton Rouge. We have a call standing by from Lorraine in Philadelphia. Uh, Will is in Milwaukee. Looks like we have one line open for you, and it's waiting for you, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. As we're uh, kind of wrapping up this first week of Lent, first full week anyway, here on EWTN's Called Communion. Do stay with us. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Very glad that you're with us on this uh, Friday afternoon. Tell you somewhere else we're very glad about, and that is all of our wonderful affiliates from coast to coast here in the United States. Uh, uh, well on our way to four or 500 now, and our friends in Central Texas need to hear from you the next week. Armor of God Catholic Radio in Texas, airing their spring pledge drive next week. If you're listening to any of their stations serving Kepner, Cameron, Temple, Texas, or anywhere, please support your EWTN Catholic radio station. We do have a uh, Lent question here from, looks like uh, Scott on uh, YouTube. Is there truth as to why we don't eat meat on Fridays? Is that because of Jesus giving his flesh on Good Friday? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So meat in the Catholic tradition is associated with kind of luxury. Yeah. And and you can think about it in antiquity, in the Middle Ages, it was, I mean, it's still pricey. You go to the grocery store, meat's the most expensive item you're going to get per pound, yeah. except for printer ink. <laughs> that, that's that's like the most valuable substance in your house. Maybe oh, we should yeah. give up printer ink on, Maybe. on Good Friday. But, yeah. but uh, meat's one of the most expensive, and it's a luxury item, and even more so in antiquity. And so... Uh, you know, as a as a sign of asceticism, we're going to not indulge in luxuries. We're going to do penance. A meat was given up. I don't know that it's so much because, um, you know, we're supposed to make a specific identification between animal flesh and Jesus flesh yeah. as it is just, uh, you know, we're going to give up delectable things. And keep in mind that until the 16th century in Europe, mm -hmm. um, we didn't have refined sugar. That's true. So, you know, if, if, we're, if the church were going to sort of write canon law from scratch today— they might have us giving up, um, you know, might giving up refined sugar and and uh, soft drinks. You know, the, what what are the what are the sort of luxury delectable items that are hard for you to live without? That's kind of the idea. Could be. Well, thank you so much, uh, Scott, for watching us today on YouTube. Let's go to Chris now, a first time caller in Rapid City, listening on the Great Real Presence Radio. Hello, Chris. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi, guys. Um, really love the show. Thank you. The question I have is my wife and I have been doing kind of a Bible in a year, and we've been going through Genesis, and we just finished it, and then we jumped, now we're going to do the book of Matthew, and it starts with the lineage of how everybody links together, and through all of that, it's all linked down to Joseph, and Joseph is not a blood relation to Jesus, and how that all ties together in, in salvation history with Jesus' divinity and then 
the actual line all the way back to Abraham. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Appreciate it. So, and uh, you, you pointed to Matthew. In, in Matthew chapter 13, it's clear that Jesus' contemporaries regarded him as Joseph's legal heir. They said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Yeah. So he was regarded as the legal heir of Joseph. And uh, so adoption is recognized, even though they didn't know he was adopted, but, I mean, adoption is recognized as a, as a legal reality in sacred scripture. There's a couple adoptions in the Old Testament. Um, you know, Moses was brought up as a as an heir of Pharaoh's household. Uh, Esther was raised by Mordecai. And then there's a little sort of marginal character named Ginnabath, who was adopted into Pharaoh's household in, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 11. And then, of course, in the New Testament, adoption defines our relationship to God. So the book of Galatians says that God adopts us as sons, mm-hmm. right, through Christ. So adoption is a reality. So so from one point of view, I mean, Jesus is regarded by his contemporaries as Joseph's legal heir. So that's a, that's a, you know, that's a legal reality. Mm-hmm. But you'll also note that there are two different genealogies of Jesus in sacred scripture. And uh, some interpreters have believed that one of them is through Joseph and one of them is through Mary. So you're, you're, you're covered both ways. Okay. Very good. Uh, Chris, thanks for checking in from uh, Rapid City. Let's go now to Philadelphia and talk with Lorraine, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Lorraine. A blessed Lent to you. What's on your mind today? Thank you very much. Dr. Anders, I was talking to a friend. He's Christian, but not Catholic. And we were talking about religion, and he told me that his parents brainwashed him about Catholicism. So is there something I can lead him to, either reading or another vehicle, to help him to understand Catholicism? Yes, there is. Thank you. I appreciate the question. Um, This might seem strangely self-serving, but I don't intend it to be. I gave an interview to Marcus Grodi, who's the host, what used to be the host of uh, the Journey Home program in EWTN, back in 2010, when I describe my own experience uh, of having been brainwashed in anti-Catholicism as a young boy growing up in the Protestant evangelical tradition, and, and I, I, I go through very systematically and show how each of the pillars of Protestant belief was dismantled through my historical study as a PhD student in historical theology, mm-hmm. and, and how the foundations of Catholicism were, were consequently built up in my understanding, so that I went from being a brainwashed anti-Catholic to being a um, hopefully well-informed and not brainwashed devout Catholic. Yeah. Well, hopefully devout, working on that one, right? And a, a lot of people have found that helpful who ask these kinds of questions. So, so go find that. It's, you can find it all over the Internet. David Anders, Journey Home, 2010. And um, there's, there's two versions, and one of them I'm wearing a gray suit, and one I'm wearing a dark suit. You go for the gray suit version, <laughs> and that's the first one. Okay. And it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's a you know, 45-minute show, hmm. so it'll, it's more detailed than I'll give you right now. But I, but I sort of go through systematically, point by point. Here's what I believed as an evangelical Protestant, sort of standard Protestant belief. Here's why all that broke down. Here's the, you know, what the Catholic Church taught me and so forth. So uh, if he's brainwashed, that, that's, that's the thing for him, really, it honestly is. And, and secondly, get him to call my show. Yeah. Like, tell him, like, this guy, Anders, he was just like you. And now he's on the other side of that divide, and he'd love to talk to you. And he's, he's asked me to ask you to please call him and 
Let's talk about that brainwashing. So go watch the video and then get him to call me and talk about it. Sounds like a plan. Lorraine, thanks so much for your call. Here is Will now in Milwaukee listening on YouTube this afternoon. <laughs> Hello, Will. A blessed Lent to you. What's on your mind today, sir? Well, I tell you when I had that and I released um, a certain drop of a ink on the page and it it just uh, melted on and uh, anyway I'm trying to get it off but well I'm I'm good and on my mind is <clears throat> okay I think we're gonna uh, put will on hold maybe we can get back with him uh, a little bit later on in the program here's Donald now in Baton Rouge listening on the great Catholic community media hello Donald what's on your mind today sir Hello, um, lifelong Catholic, uh, and somewhere along the way, I either read or heard that based on the cycle of readings in the Holy Days of Obligation and also in the weekday Masses, the three-year cycle, that if a Catholic goes to Mass every day for three years, they will have heard, preached, or read the, almost the entirety of the Bible. And I wonder, no, Dr. Anders has heard that, if it's true, and if so, what does that say to those who say that the Church isn't scriptural? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. If you attend daily Mass for three years, you will hear the vast majority of the Bible. You will not hear every single line of every single book. Um, but you will hear more Bible, the actual, actual sort of quantitative Scripture texts, than you will hear in any Protestant Church over the same length of time. Have we got Bible for you? We have got Bible for you. <laughs> Absolutely. Donald, thanks so much for your call. Here is Ashley, now a first-time caller from Nebraska, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Hello, Ashley. A blessed Lent to you. What's on your mind today? Hi. I have been speaking with a friend at work who is Pentecostal. Um, he's brought up many of the common um, Protestant issues with the Catholic Church, but he's when I think of answer him, he's very argumentative. Um, he doesn't seem to want to accept any of my answers. So I was wondering if you have a good starting point, like some place I could start a conversation with him. Yeah, I sure do. I really appreciate the question. So here's a question that I would put to a Protestant friend that I wanted to engage in a sort of good-natured but uh, maybe slightly polemical conversation. Did Jesus make any provision for the authoritative transmission of the Christian faith? Yes or no? I'll say it again. Did Jesus make any provision for the authoritative transmission of the Christian faith? Yes or no? If the answer to that question is no, then there's literally nothing for us to argue about because we have no authority to which we can appeal. It's just our private opinions. Uh -huh. If the answer to that question is yes, okay, what did Jesus specify as the means of handing on the faith? Now, here is the, the standard Protestant position. Jesus gave us the Bible. The Bible is our point of reference for determining the content of Christian faith. That's the standard Protestant line. Okay, fine. Where does Jesus specify that these 66 books, and the Protestant Bible has 66 books, where does Jesus specify that these 66 books 
are to be the church's rule of faith. Okay, show me. Where does he say that? He doesn't. He doesn't. There's no place in history or scripture or tradition where Jesus ever says, here are 66 books. This is the touchstone for Christian orthodoxy. Never does that. Now, what your Protestant friend is likely to do is he'll say, well, here, look, here, here's Jesus quoting the Old Testament. Okay, he quoted the Old Testament. Fine. No argument. You still didn't answer my question. <laughs> Where does Jesus specify these 66 books as the church's rule of faith? He doesn't. Now, there are 27 books in your New Testament. Who put the, them in the New Testament? Who put them in the Bible? Did Jesus say, here are 27 books, stick them at the end of the Old Testament? No. Show me where he said that. He never said that. Where'd they come from? How'd they get in there? This is an historical question. Did they drop out of the sky with a note saying, from God? <laughs> no. Here's the answer to the question. The Catholic Church put them together and stuck them there. Now, you don't like Catholic Church. You don't like Catholic tradition. So what are you doing with the Catholic Bible? Because the Catholic Church put it together in the 4th century. That is a great place to start with the Protestant. They're going to want to point you to the Bible, and you go, okay, well, before you point to that Bible, you have to justify to me that God intends this Bible to be our rule of faith. Because he never said so. Yep, there you go. Now, what a Pentecostal might do, this is a common Pentecostal move, uh -huh. is to say, well, I have funny woo-woo feelings when I read the Bible. And that means the Holy Spirit has told me that this is the rule of faith. To which the answer is, no, what you just said was funny woo-woo feelings are the rule of faith. That the ultimate criterion for determining the standards of Christian orthodoxy is your own private spiritual experience and intuition. Well, what if I have a different intuition? Mm. Good question. Or is intuition the basis of the Christian faith? Answer, no. Sounds like it's going to be a lively discussion with your friend. Ashley, thanks so much for your call today. Call to communion here on EWTN. Don't forget, every morning we bring you the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass from Our Lady of the Angels Chapel right here on the EWTN campus. Check it out at 8 a.m. Eastern Time on EWTN Radio and Television. And don't forget, we can send you a link to your email inbox every day all about the Mass. Visit EWTN.com and click on Subscribe. All right, let's go to Columbus and uh, talk with Ken, listening on the Blowtorch St. Gabriel Radio. Hello, Ken. What's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, Dr. Anders, um, I'm struggling with the idea of, of free will, uh, particularly as, you know, modern-day physicists uh, talk about it. And I'm not a trained physicist, more of an amateur physicist, but uh, people like Brian Greene, they talk about the fact that yeah, everything's deterministic. There is no free will. Uh, even with, you know, things like quantum uncertainty, they still argue pretty adamantly that we don't have free will, which uh, goes against my understanding of what the Church teaches about people's, uh, you know, free will to, you know, choose to follow Christ or not. So how would the Church respond to, you know, that argument that physicists are putting forward? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So uh, when when materialists physicists other or otherwise, argue that we have no free will, they are usually attempting to refute a specific theory of free will, which we might call libertarian free will. 
And libertarian free will would be free will where there is absolutely nothing that conditions or causes the act of willing. And uh, uh, there, there are Catholics that have advocated uh, libertarian free will. Um, so um, uh, uh, according to some interpretations, the Catholic scholastic theologian John Dunn Scotus advocated for a, for a libertarian version of free will. But you do not have to hold Scotus's view of free will. There are other accounts of human freedom in the Catholic tradition. Uh, famously, St. Thomas does not hold Scotus's view, right? So there's other ways of, of, uh, of, of defining free will. For St. Thomas, free will means that we can rationally deliberate between objects of choice that we conceptualize as good. Okay. Right? Now, that's all that's required for moral responsibility on, on Thomas's view. And so, you know, I've used this illustration before. It's kind of silly, but I'll use it again. Let's say I'm walking down the boardwalk, and, uh, and you know, there's a pizza place right there, uh, you know, on the boardwalk, and I can smell that delicious pizza, and that's attractive to me. It's a good. And then I hear someone go, help me, help me, and I hear a splash, and there's, you know, a drowning victim in the water. And I think, well, I should go help this drowning victim. That's a good um, but that pizza smells awful good, and I see a line over there, so if I don't get in line, I'm going to miss the pizza. And I can rationally deliberate between, say, getting the pizza, which is a good, and helping the drowning victim, which is likely a greater good, right? As long as I can, as long as I can recognize those two things conceptually distinct as competing goods, and in fact act upon one rather than the other, then I have all that's necessary for moral responsibility. Now, keep in mind, all kinds of things could condition that response. So let's say I'm a, a hard-hearted, selfish, you know what, um, an egotist, and, and my mortal enemy has fallen into the ocean, and I really like pizza, and I say, well, you know, let him drown, buddy, and I eat the pizza. The fact that he's my mortal enemy or that I have uncontrollable appetites, yes, that conditions the choice of my will. That doesn't take away my capacity to recognize either of those options as a good in itself, and therefore I still have moral responsibility. And you might come back and go, well, you know, no, that's not what freedom means. Freedom means I have to have total libertarian freedom. And I go, no, it doesn't. Not according to Thomas. And so it's not necessary for me to prove that human action has no influences upon it. That's not necessary. Right, And from a Catholic point of view, my free human choices are foreknown by God. They don't fall outside the scope of divine providence. So, you know, there is a kind of necessitarianism in Catholicism. Uh, you know, and it's not constraint, but, but my free human actions do fall within the scope of God's divine plan and control. All that is consistent with the Catholic doctrine of human freedom. But again... There are different philosophical accounts of freedom, and you're not bound as a Catholic to hold any particular one of them. You just have to hold that there is such a thing as moral responsibility. Now, let's, let's take it from another angle to your physicist friend who believes that there's absolutely no freedom. Well, the only, the only sense in which freedom becomes relevant to us in these kinds of discussions mm -hmm. is freedom for moral responsibility. So if he wants to bite the bullet and say that people are not morally responsible, what does he want to happen 
to the robber that steals his, you know, brand new 40-inch television set, right? Does he, does he want the cop, does he want the cops to come and arrest the guy and prosecute him, right? Why? Does he think the guy's morally responsible? Probably so, mm. you know? If, uh, if he gets in a car wreck and the other guy doesn't have insurance and he bashed up the back of your physicist friend's brand new Mercedes sports car, is he going to take the guy to court? Probably. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But what if he's not morally responsible? So we don't live consistently with that kind of doctrine. Okay. Appreciate your call there, Ken. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Paul now, a first-time uh, listener, uh, first-time caller, rather, in Portland, Oregon, listening on the great Modern Day Radio. Hey there, Paul. What's on your mind today, sir? Oh, hey, thank you for taking my call. Um, just have a question. A Catholic position, it's my understanding, and I may be in error, and that's why I'm asking for the clarification, uh, that humans are triune beings, that we have a body, a soul, and a spirit. The body is all things physical. The soul would include the will, uh, the passions, the emotions, uh, you know, etc., and the spirit, which I'm unclear on. So just the Catholic position on, you know, uh, the composition of uh, human beings. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. So uh, Catholic anthropology is not tripartite. It is uh, it is dualistic, and we think that there is a, a, a physical aspect to the human person and an immaterial aspect to the human person. And so it's just two. Uh, and uh, And we also think that the immaterial part is not a substance. So we're not Cartesian dualists. Thomistic dualism is a different kind of dualism, or Aristotelian dualism. And I noted that you you place the emotions um, in with the soul. Um, so in, in the Catholic tradition, it's not wrong to talk about the activity of emotions playing a role in the activity of soul, but the passions are a physical phenomenon, right? And so, you know, they're... We have, you know, hormones, neurotransmitters, and these physical kind of um, uh, substances that, that interact in a particular way to generate these responses. And that's not what we mean by immaterial activity. Right? Obviously, it's not immaterial. Um, our, intellectual, our immaterial activities are intellectual activity and our moral activity. Um, but no, we're not, we are not, uh, we're not uh, tripartitists that way. Now, uh, there is a Catholic doctrine that in, not in our bodies— but in the immaterial part of the human being, that we can see reflections and echoes of the life of the Blessed Trinity. Now, God is triune, uh-huh. right? And that human consciousness reflects elements of God's triune personality. You'll find that teaching explicitly in St. Augustine in his treatise, De Trinitate, on the treatise on the Trinity. You'll also find it in, in uh, St. Bonaventure's The Mind's Journey into God. Ways in which the human person figures or, or or reflects the inner life of the Blessed Trinity. Paul, a great call. Thank you so much for it. Here is Karina in Ashburn, Virginia, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Karina, what's on your mind today? Hi, gentlemen. Uh, Cradle Catholic here. Could you please explain the history of or why we have the Saturday evening vigil mass? And you know, how can we have a Saturday Mass meet our Sunday obligation if it's on Saturday? Okay. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So the uh, the Easter Vigil Liturgy goes back to Christian antiquity, and you, you study the, the early history of liturgy. You have all these references to, to light and candles and this sort of thing. And as a, as a celebration for new Christians coming into the Church, it was considered to be particularly appropriate because— in, in Christian antiquity, baptism 
was called illumination. So there's a close association between the sacrament of baptism and receiving the light of Jesus. And we still have that association. If you, if you attend a baptism, you know, we've got candles, and we have all this light business going on with the language of the thing, receive yeah. the light of Christ and so forth. Um, and so the, the Easter Vigil liturgy was appropriate because you would have a ceremony in the dark, uh, and then you would have all this, uh, all this illumination that would take place and figure our, our illumination in Jesus. And then, of course, Easter Sunday morning is like one of the most hallowed times in the church's calendar. It's the resurrection of Jesus. And so we die with Jesus in the darkness of sin, and we rise again with him to new life in the light of Easter. That sort of symbolism was there. Um, and in terms of why, that, why a vigil liturgy can satisfy our Sunday obligation, well, because the church says so. Right, I mean that's. I mean, they could, they could make a different stipulation, but then yeah. this is this is positive law of the church, and that's 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 the way it does. So you know, we count the the days from basically from sundown to sundown, more or less. Um, interestingly, the the celebration of the Easter Vigil liturgy fell out of practice in Catholicism for some centuries, and uh, and it was actually celebrated in the daylight. And then it dawned upon a few people that it was odd to have all this darkness and candlelight imagery in a mass celebrated in the daytime. That was weird. And so in 1951, Pope Pius XII introduced a, a, a reformed Easter vigil liturgy that could take place at night. Ah. And so actually before then, we didn't actually have that. Wow. Well, we, ha- we had like in antiquity, but we didn't have it for a long time. There you go. Uh, well, let's try to get to uh, Chris in Connecticut. Chris, we've got about 30 seconds left. What's on your mind? Thanks for taking the call. First time caller. Basically, I know that God allows bad things to happen because a greater good can happen. Is that greater good specific, like in time and space? Like somebody dies and they would have grown up to be a serial killer, or is the greater could the greater good just be, well, the person is passed on to the next life and they're in heaven and that's the greater good? Sure. We clearly do not see every greater good that comes about as a result of evil. They are not all intelligible to us. Sometimes they are. Sometimes we can see a tragedy and we can say, oh, well, here's a good thing that came out of it. A lot of times we can't, in which case we just have to we just have to trust divine providence in those circumstances. Chris, thanks so much for your call. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. Don't forget, we have wonderful programming coming up for you this weekend. Lent Today with Father Benedict Groeschel airing throughout Lent. And this weekend, Lenten Reflections, Lent A Season of Grace with Father Cedric Pazania, and A Lenten Journey with our friend Father Richard Holong and the Missionaries of the Poor. Go to EWTN.com to find out all about those great programs. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Have a wonderful weekend. See you right here on Monday's edition of Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Have a great one. God bless.